Welcome to the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It's December 2023. This is Ryan Redecki and Rory Spiegel, and we have a guest this month, Tareem Ramat. Welcome. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Why don't you tell the listeners a little about yourself before we hop into this month's article? Sure. Born and bred New Yorker, back in New York at Mount Sinai Hospital. There, I'm an assistant medical director and assistant professor with interests around transitions of care, health equity, and quality improvement. Awesome. Welcome, New York. I lived in New York most of my life, so I'm a little jealous. <laughs> All right. I think I've got the first article from this month's issue. So uh, we're going to talk about an article entitled The Cost-Shifting Economics of a United States Emergency Department Professional Services, 2016 through 2019. Our lead author here is Jesse Pines, and he is with the U.S. Acute Care Solutions Research Group. And this is uh, yet another beautiful article to add to our list of uh, Siri, why is U.S. healthcare broken? In this episode, we cover the funding models for healthcare, specifically those underpinning emergency care. As is widely recognized, the U.S. has a hybrid public and private model for health coverage, with coverage provided by the state and federal governments for the elderly and the low income, while most working-age Americans carry some type of commercial insurance. Finally, another significant subset of the population carries no insurance, whether eligible or not. And then this is all precariously perched upon a fee-for-service structure in which hospitals charge patients fictitious fees and each payer pays a different amount for the same service. Mostly, this article just uses the Nationwide Emergency Department Sample, NEDS, Medicare, Medicaid, Healthcare Cost Institute, and surveys to try and estimate ED clinician revenue, as well as direct ED costs in the years just prior to the pandemic. Revenue constituted the summation of payments for evaluation and management codes, while costs were estimated from surveys of average wages, benefit costs, and administrative overhead, with some of these estimates further informed from the internal cost per patient information at U.S. Acute Care Solutions Staffing Group. So, obviously, we have a whole bunch of rough estimates being added up on one side, and we are comparing them with a whole bunch of rough estimates on the other side. Um, But in the end, this analysis ends up finding, in short, as their rough estimate, that commercially insured patients subsidize the rest of emergency care in the United States. Specifically, they estimate in 2019, commercial insurance revenue was about $14 billion at the cost of $6 billion. Medicare basically broke even, while Medicaid and the uninsured generated about $4 billion in revenue at a cost of $10 billion. This is hardly news to anyone with knowledge of the U.S. medical reimbursement system, but carries obvious significant implications for the delivery of emergency care in the U.S., Medicare reimbursement no longer covers its costs effectively, while commercial insurers, for-profit entities, are renowned for business practices attempting to delay and reduce their liability for care. The net result is it becomes, generally, simultaneously financially unviable for emergency departments to operate, while also increasing the cost burden on those attending the emergency department for this and having some ability to pay. It's very clearly an untenable, unsatisfying downward spiral for both clinicians and patients. While these specific reimbursement-related issues are unique to the United States, it should be recognized there are substantial issues worldwide with funding and delivering 24-7 emergency care, with many systems in many countries experiencing staffing issues or unconscionable waste times. Candace McNaughton writes an accompanying editorial, leading with the quote, Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And that pretty much sums it up. 
the funding model for emergency medicine is broken, and the stakeholder cooperation required to improve the situation is hardly guaranteed. Yeah, no, as the authors allude, fee-for-service payment models are not going to be tenable long-term in the ED. Since that's safety net healthcare settings, we continue to serve the majority of publicly insured patients in the nation. And as part of that work, we also engage in a lot of health-related social needs interventions and care coordination work to facilitate this discharge planning. You know, we really need reimbursement policy to directly include funding for the tremendous resources that are invested by EDs in transitions of care work, as it clearly improves both patient outcomes and cost effectiveness. (laughs) We're serving all. (laughs) I think like everybody knows this, As Ryan said, this data is kind of vague and fudged and maybe not completely accurate, but it's still incredibly (laughs) eye-opening. Despite all that, despite knowing this, like it's it's pretty incredible how much we're losing with you know the majority of patients we see, especially in inner city emergency department. (laughs) It's still right. It also just makes you because the majority of what we do in the emergency department is no longer emergency medicine. I mean, because of how fractured our healthcare system is, we are doing so much more, as Tareem said. And it makes you wonder, like, we have found the most inefficient way of delivering healthcare to society. And we're just proudly ongoing doing it. Right. We're seeing all of the ailments that society has failed on in the ED and asked to take care of all of that in one emergency department encounter. Huge ask. Right. It goes back to the money, right? And we're seeing them because there is no money in them otherwise, right? And so there is no financial incentive for anyone else to care for them. And since we are the safety net, it ends up falling on us. Indeed. It's a very uplifting. (laughs) This next article is titled Emergency Department Volume, Severity, and Crowding Since the Onset of the Coronavirus Disease 2019 Pandemic by lead author Jonathan Oskarek for the U.S. Acute Care Solutions Research Group. They performed a retrospective observational study looking at almost 14 million ED visits from January 2019 to August 2022. And as expected, they found that ED visit volumes dropped sharply in March and April 2020 at the height of the pandemic. But even after rebound over the next several months, ED volumes never went back up to 2019 levels, although the proportion of visits with high emergency severity index of one or two and with older adults increased from 2019 to 2022. Now, despite a decrease in overall ED volume, ED crowding, as we all know, working clinically, has increased, which the authors calculated as the total number of hours all patients spent in the ED that month. And this includes patient hours for admitted patients, despite there being fewer admissions. The median of 90th percentile length of stay for admitted patients was 17.4 hours in 2022 versus 11.7 hours in 2019. And the authors found that patients with a psychiatric complaint have been especially hurt by ED crowding and boarding. A length of stay for admitted psychiatric patient diagnoses averaged eight to nine hours in 2019. The 90th percentile psychiatric length of stay for admitted patients peaked at 34.6 hours in January 2022, which, again, for us working in the ED, unfortunately does not come as a surprise, but still very disheartening, especially for these patients who are already really vulnerable not in the best state of mind, often are going to be boarding in the hallway. 
surrounded by a lot of stimulation. Um, overall, this really reinforces that ED crowding is not an ED problem. It's a hospital problem, reflecting system dysfunction, such as staff shortages and limited inpatient psychiatric capacity. And ED patients are hurt by this system dysfunction, such as an increase in leaving without treatment rates that the authors found, averaging around 6% in 2022, which is double the 3% in 2019. ED crowding and boarding has been linked to delays in critical medications and increased mortality. And as the authors point out, the National Academy of Medicine recognized crowding as a national crisis back in 2006. But this paper highlights almost two decades later that we can't continue to ignore this crisis, especially for our vulnerable patients, such as those with psychiatric illness. I'll just end with, you know, a limitation of the study is that it is from a single national ED group limiting generalizability. And it is also purely descriptive, but it does demonstrate a clear need for more investigation, looking at how specific markers of hospital and health system dysfunction, such as staff shortages or inefficient operations, and yes, my bias as an ED admin person is coming in, are <laughs> impacting ED crowding to inform more actionable data and results. I think my initial reaction is similar to yours. Like we've done many of these papers now, and I think the results here are are fairly in line to most of the other ones we've seen. Though we have reviewed a few recently that have shown that overall ED visits are back up to to pre-pandemic levels. So this it's slightly different, but otherwise it's, it's just the same. Boarding is worse, QED is higher, so on and so forth. And the frustrating part is we just keep saying, yeah, it's a problem. It's there. But we really, as you said, don't have a lot of data going into the causes or even starting contemplating how we go about fixing this. Because this article, again, identifies what I think most of us who work in the emergency department are aware of, but it doesn't really get into how we can go about fixing this problem. And then you have Jillian Schmitz, who has an editorial associated with this article, and she talks about the need for funding a true 24-7, you know, 365 days a week emergency care with all the different support systems in place to, to properly safety net the American people. And then on another side, you have the payment structures and incentives looking at sort of customer service-based issues, a total disconnect between the people making policy and evaluating how the system should be working versus the people who are actually delivering the care and understanding what the system needs. Yeah, I think it speaks again to what we talked about in the last article, which is a system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. Anyway, let's move on to our next article. So our next article is Emergency Department Visits for Alcohol-Associated Falls Among Older Adults in the United States, 2011 to 2020. And the lead author is Keming Wan. So these authors wanted to take a look at how the rates of falls in older adults had increased or decreased over the time period of 2011 to 2020, and also wanted to see how alcohol use was associated with these falls. So they included emergency department visits from unintentional fall injuries by adults from the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System All Injury Program, or the NESAP, from 2011 to 2020. And they collected all first-time visits for non-fatal injuries treated in a sample of U.S. emergency departments. They included easy visits among patients aged 21 years or older, and they justified this as the in the minimal legal age of drinking, which of course in and of itself is flawed because obviously people drink before the age 21. And then they looked at older adults with unintentional fall injuries over this time period. Older adults were categorized as 65 or older. Fall-related ED visits were considered associated with alcohol if the visit narrative included terms such as alcohol, drinking, blood alcohol, concentration, ethanol intoxication, alcohol on the breath, 
if the name of any type of alcoholic beverage was mentioned. Once patients were identified, the authors used a machine learning model with a rule-based natural language processing tool to identify encounters that were associated with ETOH consumption. Disagreements between the two tools were reviewed by authors and resolved by consensus. From January 1st, 2011 to December 31st, 2020, over 28 million older adults visited emergency departments for fall-related injuries. Approximately 2.2% of these, or over 600,000 of these visits, were alcohol-associated. The proportion of fall-related ED visits that were associated with alcohol was higher among men than women. The proportion of ED falls that were associated with alcohol use decreased significantly with advancing age. So 5.6% for those age 65 to 69, 3.4 from 70 to 74, 2.1 from 75 to 79, and and only 0.7% for those greater than 80. Head and face injuries were the most common body part that was injured and internal Injury was the most common diagnosis for alcohol-associated falls. From 2011 to 2019, the annual rates of ED visits for alcohol-associated falls increased among older adults. This trend was also seen in, in adults aged 55 to 64, though it was not sustained in the younger age group. So I think this is interesting data. I think it you know possesses all the flaws that similar observational chart review studies possess. Some of the biggest ones, obviously, are how you categorize alcohol use. And just because alcohol was in the chart doesn't necessarily mean the fall had anything to do with alcohol use. That being said, I think it's an interesting first step to look at this data. Then it'd be interesting where they go further with this kind of research. Yeah, but uh, you always have to start somewhere. First, you have to identify the problem, and then you can precisely identify the problem in a more prospective fashion, and then you can identify the potential interventions. And we see this all the time. We see all the whole spectrum of you know, everything from this sort of descriptive research to the implementation evaluations here in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So sometimes it's successful, and sometimes we have it's, it's nothing. And we say, wait, I'm glad they investigated this so that nobody else has to do this. <laughs> Research interventions that don't show a difference are just as important as ones that do. No, I was going to say what stood out for me um, was just the conclusion that ED providers now should engage in more screening for fall prevention, which, you know, as I mentioned, I am a huge proponent of recognizing the ED as playing a pivotal role on the front lines of the community for public health screenings. But it's not sustainable in the ED without clear funding mechanisms. And I'm just wary of conclusions that shift burden of such screening and counseling interventions, such as alcohol cessation, onto ED physicians without recognizing that there are other interdisciplinary team members, such as physical therapists, who frankly have more expertise in mobility and fall risk assessment. I think the next article we're going to look at in this uh, issue, um, staying on sort of the same topic, is uh, an outcome comparison between geriatric and non-geriatric emergency departments. Our lead author here is Cameron Gettle, and they're at uh, Yale University. And so we have pediatric emergency departments specializing in the care of children, staffed with specialists with a particular expertise or interest in pediatric care. So why not geriatric emergency departments, accredited by ASIP now since 2018, and similarly focusing on the care of older adults? These geriatric emergency departments implement a variety of measures focused on improving care of older adults, not nearly to the extent a pediatric emergency department does, but including resources such as case managers, geriatric assessment teams, mobility equipment, and at least one clinician with a special interest in geriatrics supporting the program. 
The question is, well, these all sound like nice things to have. What impact do they have on processes and on older adults in the emergency department? Unfortunately, this study doesn't really answer that question due to the limitations in its methods. This is a retrospective analysis of the American College of Emergency Physicians Clinical Emergency Data Registry, known more familiarly by its acronym CEDAR. In this study, the authors pulled registry data for visits from all the emergency departments with apparent high-fidelity data for visits by older adults, and then did sort of a propensity matching between 38 geriatric EDs and 152 matched non-geriatric EDs. Comprising 6.5 million ED visits in 2021, the authors looked at the rates of diagnosis for UTIs, dementia, delirium, and falls, along with process measures like ED length of stay, admission rate, and 72-hour returns. The answer, well, yeah, I mean, yes, there are small differences, uh, but the EDs included in each sample certainly have their own different characteristics independent of the variable of interest, while the precision of their estimates is low due to the overall size of their sample. There are, though, within these data, some small hints geriatric EDs are more likely to be diagnosed older adults with delirium, urinary tract infections, and dementia, at least as coded diagnoses. And perhaps EDs length of stay is lower or that older adults are more likely to be discharged from a geriatric ED. But these hints are just as likely to be mirages as true effects. To get better information on how geriatric ED accreditation affects care for older adults, we need a more granular data source for analysis, ideally focusing on the features that are part of geriatric ED accreditation. How often were these multidisciplinary care teams involved? How often were catheters and restraints avoided? Or medications specifically known to be harmful in older adults? And perhaps the comparison would be informed if we combined some of these data with sort of stepped wedge designs looking at before and after effects to see the impact at the individual institu institution level. And finally, patient-oriented outcomes rather than just coded diagnoses. The administrative burden and overhead to implement a geriatric accreditation process needs to demonstrably deliver better value and better outcomes to be worth its existence beyond sounds good. Maura Kennedy writes an accompanying editorial raising nearly all these same points, while also noting there is likely great heterogeneity between how EDs meet their geriatric ED accreditation standards. And uh, also adding in that the year of analysis, that 2021, was a very unusual year. Her fundamental point remains, however, that any widely promoted program such as this absolutely requires rigorous evaluation and measurement. Okay, let's move on to the final article of the month. Sareem, I think this one's yours. Oh, yes, our final article for today, entitled Tenecteplase versus Alteplase for Acute Stroke, Mortality and Bleeding Complications by lead author Luke Murphy and team provides supporting evidence of the use of tenecteplase over alteplase. So the authors of the study performed a retrospective cohort study of 54 healthcare organizations in the TriNetX database, comparing patients treated with tenecteplase to those treated with alteplase. They performed propensity score matching to compare groups of patients with similar demographics and predefined comorbidities, such as diabetes and heart failure, with each other, yielding a final sample size of 6,864. At seven days after thrombolytic therapy, patients treated with tenecteplase didn't have a statistically significant lower mortality rate compared to those with alteplase. However, at 30 days, after thrombolytic therapy, patients treated with tenecteplase had both a significantly lower mortality rate, 8.2% versus 9.8% for alteplase, and a lower risk of major bleeding, which they define as the frequency of blood transfusions, 0.3% uh, 
versus 1.4% for alteplase. The authors didn't find any statistically significant differences in incidence rates of intracranial hemorrhage between the two cohorts of patients. And I, I remember in my clinical practice when the switch was made to tenecteplase, I definitely appreciated its ease of use through a single bolus rather than with alteplase that required a subsequent hour-long infusion and prolonged monitoring. Tenecteplase, which I learned through this article, is also notably cheaper with an estimated several thousands of dollars saved per patient compared to alteplase. And presumably, the authors point out that the cost savings and mortality benefit may be even more pronounced with the recommended lower dose of tenecteplase at 0.25 mg per kg with a maximum of 25. And so working off this assumption, the authors did a subgroup cohort analysis from 2021 to 2022. And they found that after 30 days after thrombolysis, tenecteplase demonstrated statistically lower mortality rates at 6.6% versus 8.9 for alteplase, as well as significantly decreased rates of intracranial hemorrhage of 1.6% versus 3.2 for alteplase. But interestingly, the authors note that the number of blood transfusions as a marker of significant hemorrhage was too low in the tenecteplase group, less than 10. So they couldn't even analyze that for looking at differences between tenecteplase and alteplase for the seven and 30 day outcome measures. Now, having said all that, there are several limitations of the subgroup analysis as with any. In this case, after they did the propensity matching, the final sample size was 2,216 participants. An inability to really measure the actual dose of tenecteplase administered. But, but ultimately it's always nice to have real world data support the use of clinical interventions in high risk situations, such as an acute stroke. And, and further studies can definitely look at more granular data, such as exact dosage or door to needle times, as the authors point out. This isn't the strongest data supporting the use of tenecteplase over alteplase, because there's actually been many randomized controlled trials and other prospective, you know, rigorous evaluations head to head. And I think the basic gist is that tenecteplase is obviously no worse than alteplase in pretty much every measure. And it's so much simpler to give. We've actually been using tenecteplase down here in Christchurch the entire time I've been here. Um, so we've never we never use alteplase for any uh, indication unless for some reason we're all we've all, all run out of tenecteplase, which we had a short shortage of last year. Um, so I'm, you know this is I'm not surprising to see that the, their analysis didn't find anything really significantly concerning about tenecteplase because it's just one more piece of the total body of evidence that doesn't really seem to show any disadvantage to using tenecteplase. Yeah, I mean Ryan, I think you, you hit it on the head here. It, it's it's somewhat <laughs> confusing that this this project was was performed. I mean, I think you know, no matter what the results they found were, it would be hard to really add more to the body of literature which we already have, which is high quality randomized control trial data demonstrating that essentially tenecteplase and alteplase have equal um, e- efficacy. Um, like you said, I mean, from like a logistical perspective, tenecteplase is far easier to administer. Uh, it can be administered in a bolus rather than a drip. And so um, if one wants to give it in a, a rapid manner, which most of the time when we're giving a thrombolytic, that's our desire, um, tenecteplase is far easier. But outside of this, again, I'm not sure how much more this data set adds to the already large body of literature looking at this. 
All right. Well, that wraps us up for another month. Tareem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As always, with any questions, comments, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asep.org. Otherwise, until next month, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. Mm-hmm.